Thanks for checking out this sermon from Redemption Church in Seattle, Washington, where we are enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. If you'd like to learn more about Redemption, you can go to redemptionseattle.com. Or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday here in Green Lake. So good morning, and uh, welcome to Redemption Church. Again, my name is Alex, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. For those of you that are new, uh, thank you for being here with us. Uh, last week, Jana and I, we were away, uh, went down to this dreadful little place called Kona uh, in Hawaii, just awful, don't worry about going. It was not fun, there was no sun, and it was sad the whole time. Anyway, but we went there, uh, I, did a, I did a wedding, my oldest assistant, Austrid, she got uh, married, and uh, it was just unbelievable. They got married on a coffee farm in Kona, it was it was cool. It was very cool. And then Jan and I, we spent a few extra days down there, just us. We were celebrating our 15th wedding anniversary, and it was just uh, fun to be together. Yeah, it was so good. And um, our kids weren't with us, and so all the parents were like, amen. But like, uh, we, were, we were able to actually just talk like for a whole conversation, and it was uninterrupted. Like, if anybody knows what that's like, Holy smokes, it was that, that, that was the best part, I think, that and the volcanoes and stuff. But um, so anyway, today, go to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. We're looking at what Eric just read to us, uh, the church of Philadelphia. So Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, and uh, it's the church of Philadelphia, the ancient church of Philadelphia, not the place where rocky steps and cheesesteaks and all that are, but the old city, the ancient church of Philadelphia in the city of, well, it's the city of Philadelphia in the modern day country known as Turkey. So let me just kind of show you real quickly where this is on the map. It's the sixth of the seven churches that Jesus addresses in the book of Revelation. So you can see it's all the way over here to the east. It's at, actually, the the map doesn't really show this, but uh, this city is actually located uh, at the end of of a major valley. And so um, it's a very powerful church, though it's a small church. It's the only church, in case if you were listening closely to the scripture read, you might have noticed that uh, this is the only church that Jesus doesn't say, but I have this against you. You notice how in all the seven churches, Jesus says, I know your works and you're this and this and this, but I have this against you. This is the only church Jesus doesn't say, but I have this against you. It's It's a complete word of encouragement affirmation, upbuilding as Jesus cheers on his bride, the church. And so it's, a, it's an incredibly powerful and uh, just a joy-filled passage of scripture. So I'll tell you just a little bit about the, the city of Philadelphia uh, and give you just a little bit of the historical context. And here's why we do that often here weekly is we try to hone in a bit on the historical context because we don't believe that the Bible just dropped out of heaven untouched by human hands. Rather, it came through human beings pinning the words of God in actual real space, real time, with real people, with real history behind this. This isn't just a a mystical, mythical book that just appeared out of nowhere. But no, we believe that God and man were working together in the pinning and writing of Holy Scripture. So it's important to point out this actually is real history because we're living in real history right now. And what was said then is relevant here and now. Though the Bible wasn't written to us, it is written directly for us. Does that make sense? It wasn't written to us, but it is written for us. Let me tell you just a little bit about the ancient city of Philadelphia. As I mentioned a moment ago, uh, it was uh, at the end of a very large valley. It was situated on high ground at the south end of a, of a river known as the Kogamas River. And uh, just, a, just a few things. Uh, one, it was a city that was, that was quite prosperous. Lots of people traveling in and through Philadelphia. It was known as the gateway to the east. This is where the, the Roman postal trade route would have always run through the city of Philadelphia. Lots of schools, lots of education, lots of business, lots of commerce, lots of trading going on. So it's a thriving metropolitan ancient city. So massive importance, influence, and affluence. Um, the land directly to the north of Philadelphia is actually volcanic. <laughs> it was the result of a lot of volcanic activity. And so uh, what happened uh, was they end up having a phenomenal wine country in the north, kind of like a place where I've seen, uh, known as Seattle. And so they, they grew grapes. Um, yeah, so it was a commercial trade city by the water. It was perfectly located for global travel, people constantly coming and going. Um, 
In fact, uh, it was even prone to earthquakes. Like, yeesh. Like, uh, uh, in AD 17, uh, there, an earthquake hit, and it leveled 12 cities in Asia, and Philadelphia was the one that got the, quote, the big one. Um, yes. It's like, oh, gosh, is this like prophecy to us? Uh, Perhaps. Uh, anyway, but I'm not a meteorologist, so. Uh, but, and if you start digging around, you'll see things like, if you start looking into old maps, and maybe in the backs of some of your Bibles, if you look into the maps, you'll see this region known as Neo-Caesarea, New Caesarea, meaning uh, it, was the, it became known as the place that the empire actually was very involved in rebuilding the city after AD 17, after the massive earthquake. And so by the end of the 5th century, it is actually known as Little Athens as well because of how many religious cults and ideas had popped up. So it was, it was a thriving metropolitan city, and there was a church right in the middle of the city who had been holding fast in spite of incredible opposition, lots of reason to doubt, lots of reason to walk away from Jesus and the church, and they were unwilling to yield to temptation, and to the pressure of the surrounding culture. So I hope and pray this speaks to you today. So here, let's walk through it. Verse 7. Into the church in Philadelphia, into the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, he who has the key of David, who opens, and no one will shut, and who shuts, and no one will. Who opens? Okay, so first and foremost, right here, Jesus identified, Jesus is here speaking to the church of Philadelphia, and he identifies himself as the Holy One. Now, in some of our English translations, uh, tend to smooth this out. That is, your, your New Testament was written in what's known as Koine Greek. And, um, and, and there are more like what they call in seminary or in, in, in etymology classes, they'll, they'll talk about uh, wooden translations of Scripture. Wooden translations of Scripture are like the New American Standard version of the Bible, where it is a literal word for word, it's rough translation of Scripture. The English Standard Version is closer to a wooden translation, though some of it's smoothed out a bit. Then there's smoothed out translations, like the New International Version or the New Living Translation and and then there's others that are further, a little to the left of that, called the message. And they get a little more smoothed out over here, and they're rougher and more wooden over here. Why is that important? Because when you start looking at the, and I do love the NIV, the message, the New Living, all those are wonderful translations. But it's important to read closely to the original language as possible. And sometimes if you don't do that, we can omit and miss some things that are actually really important here. So in, in some translations, it'll read, uh, the holy and true one. But what we see written here is the holy one, the true one. And here's what's lost if you just read the holy and true one and don't read it as the holy one, the true one. You lose how the early Jewish culture conceived of Yahweh himself how they spoke about God. Here's what I mean. In Isaiah 40, here's the literal translation of Isaiah chapter 40. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength? Not one of them is missing. So you see what Jesus is doing here. When he introduces himself as the Holy One, he is not saying, I'm trying to be holy, I'm trying to be moral, I'm trying to be pure, or I strive for these things, or in some ways I, I resemble these. He's saying, I am the Holy One. I am the one who is Lord over the stars. I am the one who created them. I am the one who calls them forth as a general in an army calls forth a soldier one by one by one by one by one by name. When Jesus introduces himself to the church, he is not saying I am less than God. I'm trying to be like God. I have some great ideas about God. Jesus says, I am God. I'm God that he's embodying all that the Old Testament had to say about Yahweh. Jesus says, I'm literally him in the flesh. 
the holy one. That is so unbelievable. That when we think about the words holy, it doesn't just mean set apart or pure or moral. Though those are good words. The holy one, the word holy itself, it's the word that's said to God around his throne, right? Holy, 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 holy. What is that word? It doesn't just mean moral, 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 moral. Pure, 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 pure. What are they saying? Holy, the word holy is as close to saying God's name as you can back to his face. Because what can you say to God that glorifies God other than his own name? What's the only thing appropriate to say back to him? What's the highest? What's the greatest? What's, well, it's the name of God. So this is what the word holy tends to capture, that idea. Jesus says, I'm the holy one. That he is one in nature, in essence, with God, perfectly righteous in all that he says and does. He is completely righteous and without sin. So look at John 8, 46, just, just when Jesus was standing before a crowd in a small town, by the way, where everybody knows everybody's business. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Can you imagine, like, if, if I said that this morning, like, hey, guys, which one of you can convict me of sin? Like, Alex, this is easy. <laughs> like, we talk to you, dude. It's not very hard. Jesus standing in front of a religious crowd in a small town where everybody knows everybody's business. Jesus is bold enough to go... Go ahead. Who has anything on me? And they've got nothing. That is so bold. That's so bold. The, the, one other place in Scripture that, that highlights the holiness of Jesus is Hebrews 4.15. It says this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one, this is Jesus, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Everything you're tempted with right now, Jesus has been tempted by. Well, I thought temptation was sin. No, sin is sin. Giving in, yielding to temptation is the sin. Jesus tempted as we are. He can look at you and go, I know exactly how that feels. I know that craving. Yet without sin. This is why you ought to worship. This is why we worship him. As Christians, this is why we worship Jesus. He is the Holy One. So this is why, and if you're not a Christian, this is why like, Jesus is the standard, the rule by which all humans should live our lives by. He is not merely a good teacher to be admired. He is God. He is the Holy One. The true one. What a name for Jesus. The, the true one. The true one. Just let those words sink in for just a, the true one. And be blown away by the fact that there is someone who actually not only occasionally says true things, but embodies the very essence and defines truth itself. That of the billions and billions of people that have or ever will walk this earth, none but Jesus are the true one. Every one of us have broken the truth, stretched the truth, embellished the truth, lied. All of us have fallen short of the truth. From when we were little, when we lied when we stole something, took something that we shouldn't, to big lies as we grow up. Jesus, though tempted, never lied. He's the true one. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the truth, capital T. I'm the truth. Not I like the truth, or I try to tell the truth, or I like it when people tell me the truth. I am the truth. Here's why a lot of us don't want to get too close to Jesus. <laughs> because he tells us the truth. Always. In fact, Jesus can't lie. His only language is the truth. Isn't that amazing, though, that our Savior can't lie to us and won't lie to us? I am the truth. 
So in a world filled with lies, posturing and manipulation, cover-ups and scheming, in a world where trust is hard to come by, Jesus says, you can trust me with your life. I will always tell you the truth because I can do no other. And I know as a believer in Seattle in 2019 in a very post-Christian deconstructing environment, claiming to not only know the truth, but to say that the truth itself is embodied exclusively in one person is unbelievably controversial. We all know this. Say it tomorrow on the university campus or in your workplace, and you'll be like, well, there it is. That's a very controversial thing. Jesus and Jesus only is the truth. Not I have my truth, you have your truth. Jesus is the truth, and he defines all the other lowercase t, truth, as whether they're actually true or false. And so for Jesus to say, I'm the truth, there might be some that could object and go, well, you know, he, he could say things like that back then. I mean, come on, that's 2,000 years ago. It's a primitive culture. People could get away with things like that back then. You could just say stuff, like spiritual things like that. But that's absurd. <laughs> Here's why. Because they publicly executed him for saying that. You couldn't just say things like, I'm God, I'm the only way into heaven, I am the standard of all truth, everyone will be judged before my throne, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in his glory. You can't just say things like that in that culture and just get away with it. So if we just go, well, you know, it's a primitive culture, man, people did, we're too, you know, we're a couple hundred years post-enlightenment here in Seattle, and so we're, we're so far beyond that nowadays. They, they were silly and dumb back then like no 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 no. they they were very keen on what he was saying and publicly before his execute before he was executed Pilate challenged him over the nature of truth and Jesus did not yield he was crystal clear on who he was and what his mission was about I love that so when Jesus says I'm the true one here one theologian William Montauk said this about the word true he says true means not only the quality of speaking the truth, but above all, fidelity. Being true to one's word and one's name, which in biblical terms means loyalty to the covenant relationship. That's who Jesus is. Not just in word. He doesn't just say, I love you. He did it in word and deed, and he was loyal to the covenant that God made with Abraham, with Moses, with David, with Noah, with Solomon, and with his people. Jesus did it. Fidelity. That is where you say amen. Amen. Yeah. All right. This is what, yes, that's so good. That's our Jesus, the true one. Anybody feel like they need some truth in this city, by the way? You tired of being lied to? Yeah. Well, there is a true one. And he's among us. That's so good. Who has the key of David. This metaphor, the key of David, is so powerful. You see, Jesus comes on the scene and he's not divorced from or devoid of the Old Testament. He doesn't just show up and go, oh, yeah, yeah, the, I need to reference that. I am a Jew. I should probably think about the, the Old Testament every once in a while. That's probably what I should do. No, no, no. Jesus is the embodiment of, the fulfillment of, the whole point of, the glory of the Old Testament, the Messiah, Yahweh's Son, our Savior, the key of David all embodied in the person and the work exclusively in Jesus. He says, I have the, I have the key of David. And this is a, this is a strange, but it's, a, it's, it's powerful. The key of David, this metaphor, comes out of the book of Isaiah. There's a particular king. It's in the 8th century. It's when uh, Isaiah and Micah were prophesying. And there was a king named Hezekiah ruling, and he had a treasurer named Shebna. Shebna was to be removed from being the treasurer over the state of Israel. He was going to be removed, and he was going to be replaced by a man named Eliakim. Listen to what the man who was going to replace Shebna as the treasurer, listen to what it was going to say about him. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David, and what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. 
Possessing the key of David is Jesus' way of saying, I am the only one who has complete authority to admit someone or exclude someone from the city of God, the new Jerusalem. I'm the one. I'm the gatekeeper. It's not St. Peter or anybody. I'm the one who admits or excludes from the city of God. Jesus wants you to read your Old Testament not just as a footnote, but to read it through the person and work of his own self. This is precisely what he said after he resurrected from the dead. Remember in Luke 24, he says it two times in Luke 24, where he explains, I've got it in one place here. Pull it up real quick if we can. Yeah, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Whoa. He was crystal clear. The entire thing, Genesis to Malachi, it's about me. So that's why he can grab something like the key of David and go, oh, yeah, that's mine too. And Noah and the ark, yeah, that's mine too. And the temple, that's mine. And the light that's inside the temple, that's mine. And the lamb, that's mine atonement, that's my, everything you see him reaching back in the Old Testament, he's like, yeah, yeah, I wear that too. I wear that too. I wear that too. I'm the complete fulfillment of the whole thing. Oh, so good. So that's the key of David. So this is why we worship Jesus exclusively and we don't place him amongst another God or another philosophy in our city. He says this, I know your works. Behold, I set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And I know that you have but little power, and yet you kept my word, and you've not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. They will learn that I loved you. This is so good. Okay, so he says, I know your works. Behold, I set before you an open door which no one's able to shut. What, what, what does he mean by this shut door? Well, there were Jews in the city. There's a synagogue there in Philadelphia. And these Christians who began to see Jesus as the key of David, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, he wasn't just a prophet. The Christians began to worship Jesus and sing to Jesus and pray to Jesus and, and go before Jesus as the only mediator between God and man, not another priest standing around in a temple somewhere. They started approaching Jesus directly. And the Jews in the synagogue where the Christians started doing this eventually excommunicated them, kicked them out and said, you don't have anything to do with God anymore and slammed the door in their face. Jesus says, behold, I know your works And I'm setting before you an open door, which no one can close. No one can kick you out. When Jesus talks about, when you see this word open door, by the way, show up in a number of places in the New Testament, it oftentimes not only just speaks to the open door into into heaven itself, into communion with God, but in the here and now, the open door more often than not speaks to the opportunity to see the gospel go forward in a particular place, at a particular time, in a particular location. Jesus is saying, I'm going to open the door I have set before an open door, and I want you to continue to steward what I've given you. Remember, we said that Philadelphia was strategically located, right? I know, we all, we all look, I know, here we go. All right, here we go. Strate- Philadelphia was strategically located in a port city, lots of education, influence, affluence, all there. God has his church right in the middle of that. He says, I got an open door for you. I want you to steward this opportunity, steward this time, steward this gospel message, steward your life in such a way that all the people who are coming into the city, some are going to stay for the rest of their lives. Many are going to continue to go on. Some are going to get their education. Some are going to start their business. Some are going to do something, and then they're going to get married, or maybe they'll have a child or whatever life circumstance, but they end up taking what they learn in that local church, and they end up scattering throughout the entire Roman empire. That's what was happening, that the church saw itself as a port, that if you're here, 
then we're going to give you the gospel, and we're going to see you raised up in Christ, and we're going to see you equipped, and then as you continue your business, as it takes you somewhere else around the Roman Empire, take Jesus with you. That's what was happening, that the church did not see itself as just a little bunker, a little place to hide out, but it saw itself as a training center, an equipping center, a missionary center in which we see people come, commune with Jesus, and for those that move along, take the gospel with you. This is how how we as pastors have to think here in, in Seattle now, very practically, because we have people that come in, they get an education, they start at a particular place, and then they, they have to move. And so rather than just going, no, 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 you can't move, nope, 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 can't move, don't leave. We go, okay, well, if, if you gotta go, we want you to stay, but we understand that sometimes people have to move, and when they do, we want you to take Jesus and the gospel with you, and when you show up in that next city, Wherever God ordains you live, the time and place in which you live, wherever you show up, we want you to show up as the healthiest sheep in that city that shows up in that next church, healthy, in tune with the Spirit, loving Jesus, loving the Word, loving the church, loving one another, that you show up and go, oh yeah, here's my new family in the new pasture. This is how the early church was thinking, and this is how we have to think in very strategic cities today, like the city of Seattle. Isn't that cool? I love, I just, I lo- I love that. I love that. And so that's a, just a very practical piece. And yet there's also many that were called to, to stay there. That not everybody was just going to get an education and then move along or whatever, but it, the people were called to stay. And some of us are here, are, are, are called by God to stay in this city. Some of you are called to stay in this city. We feel called to stay in this city. And so this is what God would tell those who are called to stay. In Jeremiah 29, he says this, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters and wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Wow. That's not Jerusalem. That was Babylon. (laughs) Babylon. Just think of that. Babylon. What was God telling his people? Not go on a crusade and kill people or I'm going to drop a fireball on Babylon. What does he say? I want you to seek the welfare of Babylon. Pray for Babylon. Bless Babylon. Encourage Babylon. Buy a house in Babylon. Raise your kids in Babylon. Get an education in Babylon. Create art. Start businesses. Live your life right there in Babylon where it's all corrupt and everybody hates God and everybody breaks commandments and nobody seems to seek the Holy One of Israel. Yeah, settle down in Babylon. Babylon and seek the welfare of Babylon. Love your enemies. Wow. So some of us feel called to stay in Seattle and seek the welfare of Seattle. Yes, it's expensive. Yes, it's frustrating. Yes, it's lost. Yes. Yes. But look around this morning. All over our city. God has his people seeking the welfare of the city. It's so good. So for us as a church, let's continue to pray to strive to be like the church of Philadelphia. Pray for God to glorify himself here in and through us as we seek to raise up and train and equip and send missionaries, preachers, pastors, elders, deacons, men and women, worship ministers to see those in our city come to faith in Jesus and raise the funds that are needed and ask God to help us in creating mercy ministries and biblical counseling ministries and that God would send us writers and artists and educators and people with unique giftings to bless and build the local body of Christ right here in our Babylon, Seattle. What a blessing it is, by the way, to be standing right here in Seattle where God has opened a door. Isn't that unbelievable? (laughs) Yeah, this is so awesome. So Jesus says, I know you've got little power, but you've kept my word. They were not the biggest church. They didn't have everything, all the technology. They didn't have the most influential people in the world in in their church. They had little power. But they kept my word. What did they have? They had the word. 
They had faithfulness. They had Jesus. They had each other. They knew how to be together. They held fast. They persevered. And they held on to Jesus' word no matter what the city had to say about them. And not denied my name. This is so important. Mark that part. Not denied my name. In Christianity, it wasn't just confess the right doctrine and say the Apostles' Creed. It wasn't a word-only religion. Like, yeah, I believe that. You know, God the Father, Creator of Heaven, Earth, Jesus' Son, Virgin Mary, crucified. It wasn't just lip service religion. Denying the name of Jesus had more to do, not just with what you articulate with what you believe about him, but does your life actually correspond to that articulation, that confession. When, when it was more than just saying things. Jesus said, I, your life corresponds to your confession, and I'm glorified in that. It's not a word-only thing. It's a word and deed. Jesus says, I, I know it. I see you down there. I see you not just saying the right theology. I see you living a life that corresponds to what you actually believe, and it's cost you big time. I know Oh, but I'm glorified in that. I'm glorified in that. And I'm preparing a place for you. You just wait. Isn't that so good? Yeah. So while the pressure is on to deny, the church didn't. And while the pressure is on us to deny and just deconstruct, (laughs) may we surrender to the lordship of Jesus and yield to his word and let the gospel deconstruct us rather than the other way around. Oh, yeah. I'm so stoked. I'm so stoked. This is so good. (laughs) I know it's early and it's real gray, but man, I could just take a lap, but I won't. All right, so I will make them, I will make them, those people who kicked you out, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet and they'll learn that I loved you. What? What does that mean? Jesus is going to make the Jews to kick them out of the synagogue, come bow down. Are the Jews not going to worship the Christians? Is that what he's saying? No. 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 In case, no. Um, It doesn't mean that. Rather, it means this. That the bowing of the Jews at the feet of the Christian there was a sign of of the fact that Jesus was going to lead the Jews to repentance. That there was going to be a revival breakout there. And those that kicked you out are going to be reconciled to God and to you. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do what no one sees coming. The people that threw you out those who belong to the synagogue of Satan, they're gonna be converted. Isn't that unbelievable? The ones who rejected them, mocked them, made fun of them, ostracized them, put them out on the street, they're going to be redeemed. They're gonna bow at your feet, meaning they're going to come within the local church and they're gonna agree and correspond and they're going to join the family of God. That's unbelievable that when you think, think of the last person right now here in Seattle that you think there is no way that guy or that girl will ever, ever, ever come to faith in Jesus. Think again. Jesus is in the business of resurrecting the dead. Jesus is in the business of giving people new hearts and new minds. Don't give up on the least of these. Don't give up on those who look and appear as though their hearts are so hard that God can't do anything with them. He got you. He got me. There's no reason to write off our friends or our coworkers who aren't there yet. If he did it then, he can do it now. He's doing it now, actually. And that's so cool. Oh, man. Like I said, I'm seriously going for a run today. All right. But they're going to be converted. And what are they going to learn? This is the best. This is the best. They're not going to just learn that they were wrong theologically about the Messiah. They're not going to just learn that. They're not going to learn that Jesus is the creator or that Jesus has the key of David or that Jesus is holy or that Jesus is the truth. They're not going to just learn those things. You know what they're going to learn? Look what Jesus said. They're going to learn that I loved you, that I loved you, that I waited for you day after day, that I chased you down, that I gave my life for you, that I cared for you, that I looked after you, that I longed for you, 
that you were the apple of my eye, that you were engraved on the palms of my hands, not metaphorically, literally, that you're the beloved of God. I loved you. They, the enemies, they're going to learn not only all the true things about me, they're going to know how I feel about you. Isn't that amazing? That this is part of the joy of evangelism, church. It's, it's not just announcing the good news of Jesus. You know the best part when you get to share your faith with someone who doesn't know Jesus? You know the best part is? It's so good. You get to brag on how Jesus has loved you. Announcing your testimony, not just saying the Apostles' Creed and not just reading John 3.16. Because those things are true, you can now live into that and go, and he's loved me. He's loved me. He's seen me through oh, let me tell you where I was when I was 16 when he found me. Let me tell you where I was when I was 21 when I lost my faith. Let me tell you about the miscarriage in England. Let me tell you about the broken heart. Let me tell you how he's carried me through the worst of life. Let me tell you about his faithfulness at a funeral. Let me tell you about him. He's loved me. Isn't that the best part of evangelism is not just saying this is who Jesus is, but this is how Jesus is in my own life. And you get to brag on how Jesus has been faithful in loving us. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. They're going to learn that I loved you. Church, by the way, don't you listen to anyone who tells you that Jesus doesn't love his church or that Jesus still isn't glorified in his church. He absolutely is. Jesus is crazy about his church. He died for his church. He rose for his church. He's glorified in his church. The church is the only thing that's going to be standing a million years from now is Jesus' bride. Jesus is crazy about this church. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God stands forever and his church will rise in the end triumphant. Oh, that's good. That's so good. That's so good. So he, they will learn that I, I loved you. This is why our church exists, by the way. We exist to enjoy Jesus. Love people. Make disciples. That's what we're about. When you hear about this Jesus, it's hard not to just enjoy him. Oh, and because you kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one can seize your crown. To the one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven, and my own new name. Who has an ear to hear? Let him hear what the Spirit says. Who kept my word about patient endurance. Anybody feel like that's what Christianity feels like in 2019 on a dreary April morning? Patient endurance. You feel like that's what your faith feels like? Patiently enduring as friends walk away, as it just continues to be expensive, as there are needles littered up and down the streets, as there's encampments everywhere, and we're all kind of, what's happening in our city right now? You feel like patient endurance defines our our present experience? I know it does. As one of your pastors, and Drew and Ben and Mike, and Greg, as your pastors, we know, like, sitting with you day in and day out, patient endurance, those are two good words that I'd say, yeah, that's what it feels like a whole lot of our saints, our sheep are doing. Patiently enduring. So if you have this weird version of Christianity in your mind that thinks, man, I feel like life should be a lot lighter right now. It should be a little easier. I mean, I met Jesus. I thought he was going to take away the burden, but it seems to get more complicated. Well, he does take away the burden, and it does get more complicated. You're not alone. This is why we not just look to him, but we lean on each other, too. He's talking to a church, not an individual. So as you patiently endure to keep denying yourself and to keep giving, keep praying, keep repenting, keep serving, keep going, Jesus is glorified. And what does he say? I'll keep you from the hour of trial. I wish I had time to go. We'll just do a class on eschatology. Um, but this is him speaking to specifically over in Revelation 6. There is, there is an hour, a three and a half year period of trial, a severe trial that was to fall on the earth. He says, I'm going to keep you from that. Not, not meaning that you're not going to go through hard stuff. Nero's coming. 
but I'm going to keep you all the way through. I won't let you walk away. And in the hour where you feel like you can't persevere, I'll preserve you. You got to cling to that. It's not just perseverance of the saints. That's a great doctrine, but there's a, there's a better one. It's the preservation of God. That he'll keep you. He'll keep you. He's keeping you right now. I'll keep you from the hour. And then he says, I'm coming soon. Like, really? (laughs) Has anybody ever read these verses? I'm like, what do you mean by soon? Okay, listen, I want Alex to shut up so we can get on with lunch. Like, come on, man, let's go. But soon, my version of soon is very different to Jesus's, all right? I'm, I'm certain that you guys are feeling the same way. Like, soon, I'm coming soon. What do you mean by soon? And Jesus is like, I just mean soon. You know, in heaven, the day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day, so I'll be there tomorrow. You're like, duh! <laughs> like, what do you mean by soon? And he says, I just mean soon. It's like, well, when you're eternal, I guess soon can mean lots of things. When you get 80 or 90 years, you're going, soon better happen like now, because we're going to miss it. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. I got to read you this one verse from Peter really quickly because Peter does comment on this, and this is important. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish. I love this. But that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So why why is Jesus' soon seem to take so dang long? Yeah, dang long. That's the most theologically accurate way of putting that. Why does it take so dang long? Because he's giving the world time to repent. So every time we're like, Jesus, just get back today. This is awful. Why are you delaying? He's like, oh, because your neighbor doesn't know me yet. I'm coming. I'm going to come. But your next door neighbor doesn't know me yet. Oh, if that doesn't light a fire in you, like, well, I got to introduce my neighbor so, so we can get on with it. Yeah. So we can get on with this. And then he says this, that I'm going to give you, keep, keep persevering so that, so that no one will seize your crown. So the idea here is, is in Philadelphia, they had, uh, like I said earlier, temples and gymnasiums. The Roman games were massive there in Philadelphia. And so the winner, the one who persevered in, in athletics, the one who would be honored at the end, they would be crowned with, with a wreath. So he's saying, hang in there so that no one else takes your crown. Persevere. Win. So no one seizes your crown. To the one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. What does that mean? The pillar image speaks to something that is permanent and enduring. Permanent and enduring. All the temples were leveled in Philadelphia. But Jesus, I'm going to make you a pillar something that's permanent and enduring in the temple of my God. Meaning this, that those who persevere to the end, the overcomers, they will not stand far from God, from a distance. You'll dwell in the temple with God, that you will not sit in the cheap seats. You're going to be a pillar permanently fixed in the temple of God. So hang in there. Don't quit. And then he says this. What does he mean by this pill? Neither shall he go out of it. This means in glory that we never lose our place, that our place in the new Jerusalem is permanent and it's secure. You're a pillar there in the temple of God. You're there forever. He'll never go out of it. There's never going to come a day in heaven in 10,000 years where God's going to walk you up on, you know, and tap you on the shoulder and be like, Spencer, it's time for you to go, man. That's never going to happen. I well, know I'm picking on you, Spencer, but anyway, um, that's never going to happen. It's not going to happen. You're secure forever. He shall never go out of it. 
And then in speaking of the new Jerusalem, he says this. He's going to write a few things on us. All right. He says, I'm going to write on him the name of my God. This harkens all the way back to Aaron, the high priest, when he would wear uh, a, a gold plate on his forehead and on his chest, and it says, holy unto the Lord. It's harkening back to this, this high priest. He's like, you're all going to be like Aaron in the temple. I'm going to write on you the name of God. Of all the names you've ever been called, in heaven you will be called God's. And that's true of you even now, by the Spirit. And I'm going to write on you the city of my God, this new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven. What does that mean? I'm, I'm going to write on, it, it speaks of your residency. You get God's name and God's address written on you. This is where you live. This is where you live. It's not just Seattle. This is not your home. This is not the end. You have somewhere else. to. You're on your way somewhere else. And when you get there, he's going to write it on. This is your permanent address. How nice that we'll never have to move again. Home for good forever. Oh, that's so good. The new Jerusalem comes out uh, down from God out of heaven. And I'm going to write on him. And her, my own new name. What does that mean? Jesus' name's gonna change? What does that mean? My new name. The, the best scholars seem to point this out about the name of Jesus. That we will be able to comprehend there what we cannot comprehend here about all that Jesus is. I'm going to write on him my new name, which is not just a word. All of his character, all of his essence, all of his nature, all of his divine glory, I'm going to write this on. You'll be able to understand me in full. There won't be any more questions of, Jesus, why do you do it that way? Jesus, I don't get this about you. There's coming a day where we'll see as much as he allows in that moment to see him. For who he is and all his glory. I'm going to write that on you. Oh, that's so awesome. I'm going to read you this. I know, I know we're going over, but this is the Jesus Storybook Bible. And you've just got to hear the end. For those of you who have read it, you're like, yeah, that's the best part of the whole thing, I think. All right. Just let me just read you just a, a scene out of Revelation. If you can see, this is great. It's got Jesus with like a tiger and all the people and a sea turtle and everybody's around the throne. So awesome. There's sea turtles in Hawaii, by the way. All right. I see a throne. This is John. I see a throne. And on the throne is a king and the king is Jesus. And around the throne, people are bowing down and they're giving him their treasures. And there are loud cheers and clapping and clapping and bright laughter like a thousand waterfalls, and everyone bursts out in a new song. This is our king, the lamb who died, so we don't have to, our rescuer. All honor and glory forever and ever in every creature, everywhere, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, joins in. And from all around, a wide, immense, beautiful silence. And I see Satan, God's horrible enemy, thrown down and defeated. I see a sparkling city shimmering in the sky, glittering, glowing, coming down from heaven and from the sky. Heaven is coming down to earth. God's city is beautiful. Walls of topaz, jasper, sapphire, wild, wide streets paved with gold, gleaming pearl gates that never are locked shut. Where's the sun? Where's the moon? Well, they aren't needed anymore. God is all the light people need. No more darkness, no more night. And the king says, look, God and his children are together again. No more running away or hiding. No more crying or being lonely or afraid. No more being sick or dying because all those things are gone. Yes, they are gone forever. Everything sad 
has come untrue. And see, I wiped away every tear from every eye. And then a deep, beautiful voice that sounded like thunder in the sky says, look, I'm making everything new. It was hard to squeeze all that John saw into words and fit it onto a page and cram it into a book. All the words on all the pages of all the books and all the world would never be enough. I'm the beginning, Jesus said, and the ending. One day, John knew heaven would come down and mend God's broken world and make it true, perfect home once again. And he knew in some mysterious ways that would be hard to explain, that everything was going to be more wonderful for once having been so sad. And then he knew of the ending of the story was going to be so great it could make all the sadness and tears and everything seem just like a shadow that's chased away by the morning sun. I'm on my way, said Jesus. I'll be there soon. John came to the end of his book, but he didn't write the end because, of course, that's how stories finish. And this one's not over yet. So he wrote, come quickly, Lord Jesus, which is perhaps another way of just saying to be continued. That's so good. You can't say it better than what you would say it to a child. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Keith Anderson, a scholar and theologian, says this, not all hearing is listening, but there is a way of listening to Scripture that leads to obedience. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of Jesus and the gospel, for the new city, the new name that will be written on us, a permanent address. Father, I thank you for every saint here in Seattle and here at Redemption who is continuing to hold fast like the saints in Philadelphia. Thank you for your faithfulness to preserve us. We're so encouraged. God, I thank you that you've called us out and you have kept us. Would you keep our eyes fixed on you, Jesus? And may you glorify yourself here. Thank you for our church. We pray this in your good name. Amen.